And we are so glad to have you here at Lindsay Lane North. Man, we uh, are humbled that you would choose us to worship with today. And we pray that uh, you are blessed and the Lord will continue to bless you in our time together as we seek to worship Him. Uh, I hope your prayer today is not what you can receive from the Lord today, uh, but what you can give to Him, as, as we've just sang. And so we are continuing our series. This is our final week in our Start Here series as we kind of provide a foundation of theology that we can continue to grow in discipleship in. And so this is our last week. As a way of announcement, I do want to let you know, if you saw in the foyer on your way in today, that we are beginning our next series, I Promise, beginning next week. It'll go through the entire month of February and actually the first week of March. But we are going to be tracking God's incredible love pursuit of us that's found in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be looking at the Old Testament covenants of God as he makes with man. As, and so how God pursues us despite sinfulness, uh, despite man not living up to his end of the bargain, how God's love continued to pursue us for his glory. And so I hope whether you're joining us uh, here in person today or you're online today, I hope that you'll tune in next week uh, as we begin that. But today is today. And so we are going to be focused today on this Start Here series in the area of eternity. Last week in our small groups, we discussed the Holy Spirit and His role in the church, right? As He's redeemed us. God has redeemed us through Jesus, through the work of Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit. And so as the indwelling of the, as the Holy Spirit has indwelt us, the dwelling place for God, what does that look like in the life of our church? And we felt a, like a great exclamation point to the end of this series today would be to focus in the area of eternity. For us as believers, the stakes for us are higher. How can we believe what we say we believe and live like we don't. Eternity, and in light of eternity, a lot of things that we face in this life don't measure up in importance. And so today we're going to be, we're going to begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And then we're going to be actually in Jude uh, Chapter 1, because there's only one chapter of Jude, so we'll be in the book of Jude uh, as we continue. But in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, written by the wisest man to ever live, right? Asked by God for wisdom and became the wisest man that ever lived. What the wisest man in the world had to say about eternity is probably a good place for us to begin. Agreed? I know some of you... Thought I was that wisest man in all of history, but, uh, but no, that, that title doesn't belong to me or anywhere close. No, well, me and Solomon, you know, I'm totally kidding. Uh, but, but what God's word has to say through the words of Solomon about eternity. And I'll be honest with you, God changed my object lesson this week. Uh, because yesterday I experienced something that was pretty fun uh, my five-year-old became a six-year-old last week, and we had his birthday party yesterday. 
We had his birthday party. This is actually a gift that he received. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I wasn't getting gifts this size when I was six, okay? Um, this is from his ain and papa. This bag, at least, was from his ain and papa, so that does make sense when great-grandparents are involved. But uh, this is an actual present that, that he received. Now, I'm going to be honest with you about his birthday. Um, I really hoped, for his sake, that it lived up to his hype. Now, kindergarten is a wonderful age, can also have its downfalls at some point. Uh, but one of the things that is really fun about the age of my children is how keyed up they get for Christmas and their birthday. I mean, they are keyed up. It is the high point on a kindergartner's calendar. Christmas and his birthday are high days. And I'm going to be honest with you. My son yesterday was more keyed up about his birthday than he was Christmas. I mean, he was in rare form watching us sing, uh, watching the video of, of us singing happy birthday to him and seeing his face light up. It was a huge deal for him. And he had been looking forward to this birthday for a long, long time. I just hoped it lived up to the hype. Mostly because I didn't know the plans because my wife made all of those, right? I made all those. I just showed up. and was like, hey, this is sweet. This is awesome. Great, great job, babe, right? But he got this gift. But why wouldn't you make this a big day for him? Because he gets his picture This was on the food table. Like as if everybody there didn't already know what my son looked like. We created a shrine for my son, right? With all the pictures of when he was young, like, like he's not still young, right? Like from a baby on it, like we had pictures all over the place. So if, if my son's playing on the slide over there trying to break his wrist on the slide, uh, in the rural village, then, uh, you can know what he looks like. Like you can look at him and still see my son, even if he's a far way off, right? We had pictures of his face. It's all about him, right? My son, we, it was a party, right? People were excited. You got these things. Well, let me tell you, every parent loves these, right? By the end of the party, you're ready to shove them down your kid's throat, right? You have the... That sounds like a good idea in Party City when you're buying these, but it's a terrible idea, right? Every parent understands this, but, but it's, it's festive, right? It's, it's a party. It's, we're having a good time. We are celebrating Hudson Ostrisky, man. And he's got, everybody's got these noisemakers. He's handed money. Now, the only way this could have been better for my, five, for my six-year-old, I keep saying five-year-old, my six-year-old, is if this would have been $21 bills, Right, Because we know, kids, that money just doesn't quite equate. And so if we'd have handed him $21 bills, it's the only way he'd have been more excited. Right, Because this is a $20 bill, and it does the same purpose, but not to him. Right, He wants to fill up his billfold full of $1 bills, man, because then he got the monies. He's got monies, and he can use them. Right, And so he's handed money to adults. When do we get handed money? Right, I mean, that just doesn't happen. He was fired up about it. And then... You know, the food and the pizza and all that. But y'all, check this out. On your birthday as a kindergartner, everything already was monster truck themed. And it's not enough just to get things like a monster truck, but we have morphed a monster truck into his second favorite thing, and that is the mystical shark creature megalodon, right? This is a literally a kindergartner's dream. It is a monster truck and a shark all together in one. My son was torqued 
about his birthday. He loved everything about that wasn't I didn't mean that that wasn't pun pun was not intended there but that was kind of funny uh he was super excited about his birthday and 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 listen he's grown to expect it we make a big deal out of all of our kids and their birthdays right that's what we do as parents we have to provide that it's expected of us and so we provide this for our children and I started thinking about that as I was studying and as I was finishing up my study last night and into this morning I started thinking about that as it equates to us in eternity. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. Solomon says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Everything is beautiful in its time. If you read Ecclesiastes, other than being a little depressed after you're done reading it, Solomon makes a case that there are good things in life. Man, there is beauty and there is love and there's romance and there's a job and there's working hard and there's resting and there are good things in life. But then he throws it all out of whack when he says... But vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What is he saying there? He's saying everything in life has a purpose and it's beautiful in its time, but ultimately it's not going to fulfill you long term. It's all vanity. And yeah, it's great to have a good name, but then your kids are coming behind you and they may mess up your good name, right? I mean, he talks about things like this in Ecclesiastes, like this happens in life. And so, but in this is the theme of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Because he's causing man in all of his wisdom not to look solely at earthen means to find lasting peace and contentment. What does he say? Everything's beautiful in its time, but he has put eternity into man's heart. Can I tell you, yesterday my son was living his best life. And the anticipation of that day was placed in Hudson's heart and soul. I mean, he knew it was going to be big, and it lived up to expectation, and he loved every second of it in the same way God has placed within us a seed and an expectation for eternity. And when we only look at the temporary things in this life, what we will find is it never truly satisfies the soul. It never truly satisfies us. Why? Because man is not built solely for the temporary, solely for this world. The whole point of Ecclesiastes is to cause man to look up because there we find lasting contentment. So he's organized it in such a way, he's put this in man's heart to long for eternity and to seek eternity and to find contentment and eternity, but then he's hidden it away. Right, That that man doesn't know what God's going to do. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. He's finite. And so even though he lives for eternity and infinity, he's finite in the way that God has placed him together. Living in time creates a vacuum within our hearts that can only be filled with the eternal. As we live in time and live out our days, 
we can put anything we want to into this box of finding lasting contentment and significance. But because this world is what it is, because it is broken as it is, it cannot meet needs long term. So we look elsewhere for those needs to be met. This is the seed that's created him in. The wisest man to ever live said this. Tony Evans says this. Also up there in wisdom, if you ask me. Humanity is intention. We live in the routine of time, but our hearts are designed to long for something eternal. There is a yearning and there is a desire for every man for something eternal. Your lost friend, friend, your lost co-worker, your lost classmate, your lost family member. You don't have to go any further than understanding that they are built for eternity than to have a wonderful place to start with the gospel. They are built for eternity. And this world will not satisfy that desire. Right? And so what does it look like for us to live with this perspective? We find it in a fleshed out operation in Jude. And so if you'll turn to Jude, the next to last book of the Bible, one chapter Jude. Jude is addressing something in a church that is in turmoil. We don't know anything really about the church other than they've got some pretty shady characters that are a part of the church and a part of the fellowship. But we don't know a whole lot about this church that he's writing to. But he is writing to a specific church. And he's writing, Jude being the half-brother of Jesus, right? That he was, he was Jesus' brother. He claims to be the brother of James, who was the brother of Jesus, half-brother at least. And so he's writing to this church as a leader in the New Testament church, probably uh, later on in the first century. We're getting on up into years. This is one of the last books that were written in the whole canon of Scripture. But he gives us incredible perspective. And so according to Jude, eternity provides perspective in four areas. The first one that we see, beginning in verse 17, we see the way of the world. If we are living with this perspective, with eternity in our hearts, as believers or non-believers alike, we need to have the perspective that Jude has. Look what it says in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He says, remember, there were predictions made. Paul and Peter in the works that we find in the New Testament. And even James, Jude's half-brother, right? He was known as Judas, but his shorthand would be Jude. Even his brother James had predicted that these opponents of the church will come. In Jude, they're there. In Jude and in this church, these opponents have reared their ugly head. And they are wreaking havoc. And so he reminds them, listen, we told you this was coming. Some of it is going to come from those outside of the church. Here's some of the sins that Jude discusses. If you're reading the first part of Jude, 
you'll see that there's sins discussed like rebellion. There are those that are rebelling against God and rebelling against authority within the church. There's sexual sin that is run rampant in the church at this time. There's apostasy, those that had claimed to have a relationship with Christ and had completely left the faith. There was political corruption in the church. There was blasphemy and there was selfish conceit. All over the first part of the book of Jude, he is detailing these sins. And some of them came from the outside world. Now, we've seen that. In in, in the canon of the New Testament, we see external enemies. We see people that Paul faced like the Judaizers. We see people that Jesus faced, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We see uh, people that the early church faced in Rome as they persecuted the church. We see all of these different external factors, and sometimes persecution comes from without. But what Jude was reminding them... And and I think for us today, there is a certain amount of expectation that if we are making a difference for the kingdom of God, there will be external things against us, right? Uh, as, As one pastor said, how can we push back the kingdom of darkness and not ever expect for there to be some pushback, right? Externally, there'd be some pushback. And so, and so, yes, sometimes these opponents lie outside the church. And so when we have perspective of the way of the world, we can understand that this that, that these are not our enemies, right? But they are people that are living in a pattern that is completely different than us. But I don't know if you've ever been a part of this. But enemies don't just come from without the church. Outside of it. Sometimes the enemies come from within. And sometimes these can be the most detrimental to the divisions of the church. And that's actually predominantly what Jude is talking about. There are some in the church that claim to have a connection of Jesus that they certainly did not have. He's not talking about, by the way, and we need to clarify, he's not talking about people that have lost their salvation. He's talking about people that never had a John 15, an abiding with Christ, a relationship with Christ. They claimed an association, but there was no connection. And those have fallen away and created divisions. But some will come within the church. The same thing that I just detailed, this Rebellion, the sexual sin, apostasy, political corruption, blasphemy, and selfish conceit. All of these things were happening within the church as well. It's why for me as a pastor, I would love to ever, for every person that ever comes in the door of this church to partner with and walk right alongside in perfect harmony as we pursue the face of Jesus together. But it's simply not always the case. Right? And so that some would come and provide division. Some of the deepest hurt in my life have come from people inside the, the fellowship of faith. And by the way, every time, you're feeling, every time your feelings hurt from somebody doesn't mean they're lost. Okay, So let me, let me say that right off the bat too. There's not a demon under every bush and doesn't mean, well, he made fun of, he hurt my feelings, so he must be lost, right? We can jump to that conclusion as well, but sometimes this happens. And in this church, there was a lifestyle, a pattern of lifestyle within the fellowship of the church that was not conducive of Christ's followers. 
They were seeking worldly things. As I have approached ministry, a wise, wise man told me one time, those that are rowing the boat have little time to busy themselves rocking it. And as a church, if we focus on the main things, we won't become discouraged with the minor. I don't know if you know this or not, but Lindsay Lane North ain't got it all figured out. We ain't got it figured out. We ain't a perfect church, and we got problems just like everyone else. But what I desire to do as your shepherd is I desire to lead a church that is missional in the major things of Scripture. To focus our attention not on within to where we can begin to worry about the condition of a building or we can worry about arbitrary things that sometimes churches worry about, but we can focus on where we need the glory of God in the reaching and the establishment and growth of the church. These are the major things. And so for Jude, this church that Jude is addressing had begun to make minor things major. And they had sowed division within the church. And it was breaking everybody apart. It was distracting even those that were missional in their thinking. It was distracting. So think about that in our own life. Am I someone who's rowing the boat for the kingdom of God? Or am I somebody that's just here rocking the boat? Have we placed our focus on the major things rather than the minor? It's in the nature of the world, in your notes, to seek satisfaction in worldly things. The word that is used there is unique. That he, as he says, right, that they are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. This is how we know that they, weren't, they hadn't lost their salvation. Man, as Solomon said, God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. This is our soul. It is eternal. We are different and unique from all creation. As the image bearers of God, we are eternal. Our soul is eternal, and we will exist in one of two places for all of eternity. After death, it is not the end. There is eternity. There is ever after for us in one of two places. We have been, it has been placed within us, as Solomon says, and it's brought to greater light in the New Testament. So we have a soul. The word worldly literally means in the Greek, solely living. S-O-U-L, solely living. Living only in your soul, in your own power, in what you find important. This is placed in comparison to spirit-filled living. Why? They were worldly people and they were devoid of the spirit. Jude was talking to those in the church that had witnessed solely living, but who were living under the direction of the Spirit of God. When you become a child of God, He places His Spirit within you. And so His Spirit then informs your soul on eternity. And so are we living Spirit-filled lives? Are we filling our life with solely temporal things? But the seed has been placed there. And so are we living in light of eternity? Are we living for the here and now never to be satisfied? So it's in the nature of the world to seek satisfaction in worldly things. These soulish people placed a tremendous 
important, on things that were less than tremendously important. I had a great conversation when our church was just beginning, just a few weeks old. I sat in the living room of a couple, and they began to tell me that they weren't big fans of the style of our worship. Some of you in this room, if it's your first time with us, you may have thought, I ain't a big fan of this worship style. And they began to share with me about that. But then they said, but I recognize that worship is not about me, and I can worship God anyway, but I am sold on the mission of your church. I am sold on the fact that you major on the major things, and you seek to win the lost and make a difference where you're planted. That couple eventually would join our church. Not, not in love with everything we do stylistically or everything that we do as, as, as a mode of worship. Those are modes. Those change. But Christ doesn't change. And so when we're focused on the major... We make maximum impact for the kingdom of God. So, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of everything, but I am convinced that you are here to make an eternal difference in the life of people. As I hear, I, I love the, the expression that we exist to make it harder to go to hell from Elkmont. Man, I want it to be hard. I want every single person in Elkmont, Alabama, if they're going to go to hell, they're going to hell over our prayers, over our outstretched arms, over all of our better efforts to reach them for the kingdom of God. As, as Spurgeon said, let no Christian go to hell unprayed for and unasked. Focusing on the major things. And he's reminding them. These are people that are sowing division. And these are people that are focused on solely things. You focus on spiritual matters. And so we come to the second thing. The calling of the church. Listen to what he says in verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He says, focus on that which leads to eternal life that satisfies both your soul and your spirit. And this is how you do it. Ultimately, the world is called to be different from those who are worldly. Those that are living dictated by only their solely passions, the worldly passions, we are to live differently from them. And how do we live differently? By building ourselves up in the faith, in the most holy faith. This speaks of edification. As we talked in our home groups, as you attended our, your, our home groups, we talked about the functions of the church to glorify God, to worship God, to edify the church, the body, to grow one another up, to grow deeper in our understanding, to grow spiritually. But number three, to reach the lost. And number four, to meet needs in the church and meet needs outside. We are to meet needs. Right? These are the four functions of the church, and he's reminding them of this. Listen, don't worry about the opponents. Don't worry whether they're coming from inside or outside, whether they're hurting you or they have no impact on your life. Focus on building yourself up in the faith. Focus on growing in your relationship with Christ by praying in the Spirit. We defeat soulish living by being in the Spirit. And I love what... 
one commentary said. It said, faith carries prayer in her arms. A marker of someone of faith is someone who spends time diligently in prayer. It's hard to make the argument that you are a person of great faith if you are not a person of great prayer. Because prayer begins with the understanding that you can't meet your own needs. And you are completely dependent on the Lord. Whether you think you can meet them or not, you recognize we're not. Whether this is a a point of strength for me that I'm about to do today, or this is a point of weakness for me, I am incapable of providing for myself. And God, it is, prayer is not a way that we jerk God to our agenda, but it's a way we align ourselves with God's agenda. It's, it's a way we leave the solely thinking and we approach the spiritual thinking. Prayer is for us. Prayer changes us. And if we're to be built up in faith, we are going to be built up through prayer in the Holy Spirit. And are you a person of prayer? Is prayer a part of the culture of who you are? Even people that spend significant time in the Word. Myself in my own life. Leading a church. That is seeking to make a difference. Am I living in faith informed by my time spent in communion with Christ in prayer? Is this a reality for me? Because it's in the nature of those saved from the world to seek satisfaction beyond the world. We got bigger fish to fry than solely worldly living. We are focused on the eternal. Different with us should be the understanding that satisfaction isn't found in personal achievement. It's not found in our job. It's not found in our, the success of our children. It's not found in our career. It's not found in our 401k. It's not found in the size of our church. It not, it's not found in uh, all of these things. It's not found in what we do. Not a personal achievement, but it's found in a personal relationship. Christ never calls us to do anything before he calls us to himself. And to be in that relationship with him. So having entered this relationship, our mission then is to introduce others to this relationship. To introduce others to the relationship that we found. If Christ is the most important thing to us, then it makes sense that we communicate this relationship to others. Upon understanding heaven is your home, it is to encounter the sobering thought that heaven is not the home of all people. So there's mission. Thirdly, we find the love of the lost. Those people that hurt us the most deeply. Those people that have betrayed us to the greatest extent. Those people who have jacked up our life. If we are in Christ, if we are abiding and connected with him, then we will find our posture of love toward that person. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on those who doubt. And save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You know what this tells me? In your notes, the love of God always sends us to others whom God loves. 
The love of God played out in our life always sends us to those whom he loves. He loves us all, right? And so all, he would, he would desire that all would come to repentance. And so God sends us as his church from our love for those who are outside this relationship. But our mission doesn't always look the same. Our mission towards one doesn't always look like our mission toward another. And Jude points this out very clearly. There were certain people in the church that needed to be responded to a certain way. And there were others in the church that needed another type of restoration. And then there were some, he said, hey, be very, very careful with this person. And this is what he says. He says, what does he say with the first one? On for the first, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on them, those that are close to coming. You've ever, you ever had one of those people that you've been really trying to sow into, really trying to reach, and man, you, they're just, they are so close to Jesus. They are so close to coming to Christ. And we're just thinking, man, they are, they are so very, very close to receiving Jesus. But there's just doubt. There's doubt. There's hesitation. And to that person, he says, treat them with mercy. The idea is nurturing. I pray that our church is a nurturing church to one who is outside of a relationship with Christ, that has hesitation and has difficulty, that they would witness the relationship of Christ Christ in me and the relationship of Christ in you, and that this would be an environment that would draw them to Jesus. New life in Christ. And for those that are close, man, nurture them along. Be patient with them. Have mercy on them. But the church isn't always supposed to be nurturing. It isn't always supposed to be easy and light. Because he says then, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, I don't know if any of you growing up, I know we live in a more politically correct world, But I've been snatched up by my parents before. And if you've been snatched up, you know you've been snatched up. I've been snatched up before, and let me tell you, that's an aggressive thing. All right? It's not a passive, hey, son, it's time for me to lead you this way. It is a get your old tail in the car before I kill you, right? I mean, it is, there is a whole change when we go from being snatched up to being nurtured and cared for. And he says here, to snatch them out of the fire. Do you know the word snatch, uh, snatching here literally means literally means to plunder. In Matthew chapter 12, that same word is used to plunder a strong man's house, right? To literally to rob, to take away, to rip away from someone, right? Now think about that as it relates to the fires of hell. What if we as a church were known for how aggressively and how boldly we plundered the flames of hell? That we snatched people from their sinful lifestyle and we brought them into a love relationship with Jesus. Church, there's a time for nurturing, but there is a time for boldness. And under the shroud of political correctness, we cannot shrink from the fact that God has called us to snatch people away from the flame. A passion for the lost As Jonathan Edwards would preach a sermon by candlelight, and literally he read every word by candlelight. And as he preached a message saying, do we not realize 
that we ourselves, our family members, our loved ones are hanging by a thread over the fires of hell. God has called us to be bold, church. To be bold and win people to Christ. To give them opportunities to come to Christ in boldness. But then there's some. Show mercy with fear. What he doesn't mean is show mercy but fear them. It means show mercy but reverence me as you do it. This doesn't speak to nurturing or having boldness. This speaks to discernment. There is a teaching out there in order to win the lost, you have to join the lost. This is why for me, that the most effective way for me to reach people is probably not to belly up into a bar and start trying to win the person beside me. Even if I don't sin, somebody driving down the road seeing my truck parked at a bar, I'm going to soil my garments right, with that person. I'm going to lose credibility with this person. There are some that have built relationships around this idea. Honor God, show mercy to the lost while reverencing God. It's why you shouldn't be yoked with an unbeliever, right? Missionary dating teenagers doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can change him, mama. I know I can. I can bring him up. I, maybe he'll become a Christian and he'll come to church with me. You don't have to join the lost to win the lost. But we treat them with mercy. We go to them in relationship, but we don't have to join them because we are still reverencing God in the way that we approach things. And listen, I'm not telling you to do all three. I'm not telling you to do one of these. I'm not telling for some of you to be bold and turn or burn, right? Go preach on a, on a street corner. I'm not telling some of you to nurture along and be careful and loving. I'm not telling some of you uh, to, to approach with mercy but still reverence God. I'm telling you that Judas called us to do all three. God's called us to do all three. And to that you may say, how in the world do I do it? How can I be bold and nurturing at the same time? How can I reverence God while also trying to meet someone where they are? How can I do this? To which I would respond, number four, the glory of God. Many of you in your Bibles, as you're reading through, along with us, see that above this subheading is doxology. The word doxology literally means glory speaking. Doxo, glory, and logos being the word, right? Speaking. Glory speaking, what we find here in Jude is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture of the power of God. And don't miss this. This is challenging stuff for the church. But don't miss, in this, beautiful, this, this incredibly difficult challenge to the church, we also have the richest understanding of who God is. What does he say? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless 
before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And then Judas takes his pen and he drops it and says, Amen. Do you know how we reconcile how to treat the lost? Do you know how we reconcile what method we use to engaging people with the gospel of Christ? By trusting God to be sovereign over it all. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you blameless. And if we will focus in on God and we will live our life in a love relationship, right? Built for eternity, looking forward to eternity. If we are remaining in this state of mind and we are looking to God, then we will see how he plays out what evangelism and what discipleship and what mission looks like as we pursue him. And that sounds oversimplistic, but the greatest, one of the greatest challenges of the church ends with the understanding that God is over it all. God being over it all doesn't mean that we should do nothing. It means that we should do everything in light of that truth. He's done it all. He's over all. He knows how to reach your friend. He knows how to reach your coworker. He knows how to use you mightily to impact the lives of your children. He knows how to use you to reach that lost person that sits beside you in math class. He knows he has that. And if we will walk in beat step with him, we will see him using us to make all this happen. Because we seek eternity in our heart. But it is Christ who seals our heart for eternity. We seek after eternity. But Christ is the seal. He who found you is able to keep you. So would you remain in him as he uses you to be on mission and sent to a lost and dying world? Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? How can we believe what we believe and live like we don't? First invitation, word of invitation I would have for you is for one of you who is not ready to meet eternity because you're living for worldly things. Whether you're in person or you're joining us via live stream. You would recognize that you are not living for anything past this world. Would you receive and respond to the invitation of Jesus to prepare yourself? The seed of eternity is there in your life. Would you receive the spirit of God? Would you Enter into a relationship with Christ today. We have counselors that are here in this room, my right and left-hand side, here in the front of the church that would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have that relationship with Jesus. Before we go any further, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. 
If you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. Even now as I'm talking, you can stand to your feet. You can come find one of these here at the front, and they would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Christ. You can get it secure, get it final, get it nailed down to live your life in light of eternity. But maybe there's some. And even though, like the church in our scripture today, you've allowed secondary worldly things to shift your focus. Would you respond in the spirit today? And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe that means you spending time right now in the quietness of your own heart, there at your seat, in prayer, praying, getting your life prioritized the way it needs to be. Maybe that looks like joining Lindsay Lane North as we seek to make a difference in this world for the gospel of Christ. Maybe that looks like a rededication for you. Maybe that looks like getting your baptism in order. Maybe that looks like joining a ministry team. Maybe that looks like getting involved in home groups. But whatever you need to do, whatever decision needs to be made, our counselors are here, and we would love to see you respond to the direction of the Holy Spirit today. Is that you? How will you respond? Father, give us boldness and strength. In Christ's name, to live in boldness in this moment and to respond to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. With every head bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you and you need to make a decision today, would you just stand right where you are? Come, come to the front. Find one of these counselors where they'd love to talk to you. Maybe you just got questions. Whatever needs to be done, I pray that you wouldn't allow this moment to slip by without doing business with the Lord. If that's you and you need to respond, would you do so now? Without hesitation, without delay, would you respond to this invitation? It's not mine. It's not Lindsay Lane North's invitation. It's the Holy Spirit's invitation to you. Would you respond? If you're listening online, there's a way for you to respond as well. So attached to this live streaming platform, you'll find a way that will connect you to our online connect card. And if you will, click on that link. We would love for you to fill out that card. Let us know that you were here. We want to be able to follow up with you in some way. But we also want you to let us know if you've made a decision for the Lord. And so if you would do that, it'll be attached to our online connect card. You can let us know, hey, I made a decision for Christ. Whatever that looks like, submit that, and then we will follow up with you this week. For those in this room, for whatever reason, if you didn't respond to this invitation, you can do that as well. In that Connect card inside your bulletin, there's the same document that we would love for you to fill out and to place in the offering bucket as you leave on your way out today so that we can follow up with you as well. Father, I, I pray that you would allow us to be changed and be different as a result of what we've heard today, as a result of being impacted by your scripture, your revelation of yourself to us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. God, if we would just allow ourselves to be focused on living our lives, led by your spirit in all that we say and do. So I pray for the one that needs to respond still in obedience to begin a relationship with you or any other that needs to respond in whatever way to your gospel, God that they wouldn't leave this moment without doing just that. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your
may it make a difference in our life. In Christ's name we pray.